look back at my time at uni, there's one, there's one moment I keep on looking back to with uh, regret. Uh, it was when I was uh, speaking to my flatmate Brian, I lived with him for uh, two years, we were on the same course together, and one time we got onto the Gospel, and we were having a, a conversation about the Gospel, I shared the Gospel with him, what I believed, and then I asked him, what, what do you think? He says, well I believe there's, there is a God up in heaven looking down, but I don't think we can know anything about him. And at that point, there was so much I could say, and I went, oh that's nice. And that was the end of the conversation. Do you know, he had this view of God, and I could have said something, but I didn't see anything. And you see, I don't think that Brian's alone in what his view of God is like, what he thinks about God. And you saw it in some ways in the, the video for the real lives, didn't you? Does God exist? Possibly, I hope so. That's a very difficult question to answer, that is. But you see, there is so much to say to that question because God can be known. And when I say God can be known, that's, as we look at the plagues, that is the whole purpose of them. That's the big thing. And hopefully in your groups you've seen that the plagues are not just random occurrences, not just plan kind of A to J of, of God trying to get the Israelites, get the, get the Israelites free. So you see there's a structure to them. They were planned, they were designed, carried out with a purpose in mind. And the purpose that God had was that people might come to know who he is, come to know about God, come to know about Yahweh, that's the whole point. The plagues are a powerful sermon about God. So I wonder as you read through the passages together and navigated the text, did you see something else that was repeated? Maybe just flick through these passages with me when I, as, I, as I say them now. Look at chapter 7 and verse 17 in the narrative about water being turned into blood. See what God says? 7.17 This is what the Lord says. By this you will know that I am the Lord. The Pharaoh thought he was king. But God was going to show him that he was sovereign. You see it in 8.10. Many frogs will disappear tomorrow, says Moses, as Pharaoh asked. And then in 8.10, Moses replied, It will be as you say, so that you may know there is no one like the Lord our God. Look again at 8.22. The swarms of flies will come. 8.22. So that you will know that I, the Lord, am in this land. You see, Pharaoh might think that God has no power. The signs show that Yahweh is Lord. Look at 9.13. Then the Lord said to Moses, Get up early in the morning, confront Pharaoh and say to him, This is what the Lord, the God of the Hebrews says, Let my people go. Sorry, that's the wrong verse, I think. Oh no, sorry, it's not. Let my people go so that they may worship me. Or this time I will send the full force of my plagues against you and against your officials and your people so you may know that there is no one like me in all the earth. See again? So that you might know. God wants Pharaoh to know that there is no one like him. He, He continues. 
For by now I could have stretched out my hand and struck you and all your people with a plague that would have wiped you off the earth. And have raised you up for this very purpose. And what is that purpose? That I might show you my power and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. See that? So that you might know. So I might show you my power and my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. God wanted everyone in the earth to know his power and for his name to be proclaimed. The name Yahweh. Look at 10, 2, 1 and 2. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the hearts of his officials, so that I may perform these miraculous signs of mine among them, that you may tell your children and grandchildren how I dealt harshly with the Egyptians, and how I performed my signs among them, and that you may know that I am the Lord. You see, God wanted to be known in Egypt at that time. He wanted the Israelites to be able to tell their grandchildren about it so that they would know who Yahweh is. That they may know who is God. You see, the big point to learn from this history, know that God is Yahweh. Know that God exists. If that's the big point, know the Lord. Let's just ponder what that really means. What does that look like? What do we to know? Well, firstly, we see God's power. Uh, know about God and see first his power. Did you notice in each of the signs, God controls creation. He controls the natural world. You see, at his word, water turns to blood. Now, at his word, thousands or millions of frogs came up. And at his word, they go away again. He causes gnats and flies and locusts to swarm. He calls hail to come at a particular time. He causes the death of livestock. And he causes the sun to stop shining. And it's quite awesome power, is it not? To be able to control the natural world like that. It's true, there is some people who will try and explain these things as though they're natural phenomenon. Listen to how one writer describes it. He says, For instance, the Nile turning into blood has been attributed to either suspended soil particles in the water or unusual accumulation of bacteria during the period of inundation. The result of the pollution of the water was the flight of frogs from the Nile. Gnats or mosquitoes are also not uncommon at certain time of year in Egypt. But perhaps the plague refers to an unusually heavy population. A suggestion has been made that the boils which affected the men and livestock of Egypt may have been a skin anthrax transmitted by the bites of flies that had contact with dead frogs and cattle of earlier plagues. Now, I'm not totally averse to the idea of the signs having natural causes. You have to see that God's in control of them, do you not? Even if they did have natural causes. No, they happen when he says, tomorrow this will happen, and it happens. They go away when he says. Now, you saw that, didn't you, when, in 8, 9 and 10... Do you know, with the, with the frogs, Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, Pray to the Lord to take the frogs away from me and my people, and I will let your people go to offer sacrifices to the Lord. 
Moses said to Pharaoh, I leave to you the honour of setting the time for me to pray for you and your officials and the people that uh, and your people that you and your houses may be rid of the frogs except for those that remain in the Nile. Tomorrow, Pharaoh said. Moses replied, It will be as you say, so that you may know that there is no one like the Lord your God. The frogs will leave you and your houses and your officials and your people and they will remain only in the Nile. So the next day, the frogs go. They die. You see, God removes the frogs at a particular time. And you see the same pattern happen time and time again. These, even if they're natural phenomena, happen when God says. And yet, in some ways, they're also bigger than just natural occurrences. There are the things happening which are bigger than normal. The worst hailstorm that's ever been known. And even if you think about the blood, it wasn't just in the Nile where you'd get the the bacteria or the soil particles. It was in the containers of the land as well. You see, what we see as we come to know who God is, that he is powerfully in control of all creation. It's quite staggering power. You know, it goes against... It's just a kind of side note, I suppose. It goes against a a theory or a kind of theology called deism, which would say God exists, but he's in heaven and has nothing to do with this world. He's set up laws by which the world can work, but he never has any direct contact with it. You see here, don't you? Here's God actively involved in the world, doing things. He does what no one in this world can do. He's very powerful. We'll see the the power of God. But secondly, in the light of the power of God, see the powerlessness of humans. Now when you know God's power, you see how powerless we are. They were quite good actually thinking we were in control. I don't know if you, you're like that. No, uh, we have plans for our lives, things that we're going to do with our life. Uh, you know, so Harry, one of my sons, is planning to be a Michelin star chef when he grows up. I really hope he actually does achieve it. Uh, it's quite good. As long as he gives us free meals. You see, what's your plan for the future? Because you have to realise that in the light of God that you are powerless before him. It's not wrong to have plans for the future. But realise that you are not in control. Can you imagine how powerless the people of Egypt must have felt? How powerless Pharaoh must have felt, the the all-powerful king of Egypt? How powerless he must have felt before God. All that the nation relied upon is is taken away and destroyed. The Nile is undrinkable. The Nile, which would be a source of life, is destroyed. The source of food is destroyed. As animals die and as crops are destroyed or eaten. All they rely upon is taken away and destroyed. They have nothing left. Every support in life is taken away. Everything that seems so secure and stable is removed. All because they need to realise that God is in charge and they are powerless before him. During the plagues as well, there's probably also 
uh, a direct connection in some of the signs to the, the idols the Egyptians would have worshipped their gods if you like that they worshipped the Nile uh, the, in the, the sign before when Moses throws the staff down it becomes a snake and then eats all the other snakes up well they worshipped the snake Pharaoh would have worn a crown with a, a snake on the front and here's the snake that God makes eating them all up uh, Hecate was a, a god with a, the head of a frog and here's the frog kind of doing God's bidding you see, God destroys their idols, both the physical things they worshipped in the world, but also the things that they relied upon for their very life. See the power of God. Know God, and you realise that before Him you are powerless. God is in control. We'll also think about how are you going to relate to God? How, what does this uh, say about how do you relate to such a powerful God? And what we see is there's two sides of it. Now as you uh, read the plagues, you see that there is a judgment on Pharaoh. A judgment on Pharaoh and the people of Egypt. You know, they have set themselves up against God. They are doing things which are evil in his sight. And God shows them up as an example for us of judgment. If God comes and judges the Egyptians at this time. I think sometimes we think, oh poor old Egyptians, they were as if they were innocent. They've done nothing wrong. And yet, that's not the testimony here. You read it at the beginning of Exodus. The Egyptians were the ones who killed the, the Hebrew babies. They were involved in that. You see, in the, the judgment that they face in these verses, in the future chapters of Exodus as well, is only really a shadow of the judgment to come. This is what all people will face. All people will face God's judgment for what they have done. We, we learned about that last week. There will be a time of reckoning when people are called to account for their deeds. And you see, the plagues show that day will come and how powerless we will be before it to stand against it. But did you see in these verses as well that there's also another way of relating to God? Did you notice in some of the plague that a distinction was made? Did you notice that? You see it in 8.22. In the plague of flies, God says, But on that day... I will deal differently with the land of Goshen where my people live. Or in the plague of livestock, we read in 9.6, all the livestock of the Egyptians died, but not one animal belonging to the Israelites died. You see it in the, the plague of the hail, 9.26. The only place it did not hail was the land of Goshen, where the Israelites lived. Can you see, can you see what, what's happening there? This judgment falls on the Egyptians, and yet the Israelites are spared. You see, they're not spared at that time because they're good. You know, don't think that the Israelites 
are somehow better than the Egyptians, that they were a good people. They're not spared because they're good. They were equally sinners. These people are spared. The Israelites are spared because God is merciful and kind to them. They escape. The whole exodus means God's taking them out of Egypt, saving them, not because they are good people, but because they are God's people. God chose them. He's being merciful and kind to them. And you see, that's the very same point that we see in the New Testament, isn't it? If you're a Christian here today, why do you escape judgment? Why do we say you'll escape judgment in the future? Because you're a good person? Because you're better than the rest of your flatmates? You see, the New Testament is quite clear. You don't escape because you're good. You escape because God's been merciful and kind to you in the Lord Jesus. You see, you escape judgment because God has looked on you and called you. Now, when I say that, it doesn't mean that life will be perfect now. The Egyptians, the Israelites still found life hard. But it does mean that those who are gods escape the future judgment. Do you know, I love uh, Psalm 2. It, it pictures uh, a world in rebellion against God. Do you know, everybody takes their stand against God. And it has this picture of God uh, sitting in heaven, way above everybody, and just kind of laughing at how pitiful it all is. Now, God is so powerful, and these kind of people are trying to uh, rebel against him. It's just it's ridiculous. And in the face of that kind of thing, what, what are people to do? Everybody's rebelling against God. God is so powerful and so strong. Uh, what, what do they do? Well, it finishes with these words. It says, kiss the son. Kiss the son, unless he be angry and you be destroyed in your ways. For his wrath can flare up in a moment, but blessed are all who take refuge in him. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. You see, that's how you escape future judgment. You take refuge in Jesus. Not because you're good, but because of who Jesus is. And you find rest there. You know, you might be here this morning, you say, you're not really sure whether you're a Christian or not. And you say, why would I want to do that? No, I don't believe in this God. Well, you see, in the, in the New Testament, that we see the person of Jesus. And in Jesus, you see the one with power and authority, like the one who uh, works all these plagues in Egypt. You see, the plagues actually point to Jesus. Now, you see Jesus, in the recording of him in the New Testament, able to control the earth. He could walk on water. He could uh, stop storms. He was able to turn water into wine, to heal the sick, to raise the dead. He could do what no one else could do. You see, and even uh, non-Christian historians of that time point to Jesus and said he did amazing things. 
And then more significantly, after he has been raised from the dead, he comes to his disciples and says in Matthew 28, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. The same authority that you see God wielding in Exodus has been given to me. I don't know what your view of Jesus is, but he's not a man who just went around cuddling lambs. He's not some kind of soppy sentimental man. He was God come as a man with the authority that you see God having in the plagues in Egypt. Can you see that you don't want to trifle with Jesus? You want to take refuge in him. You see, this Jesus was a man of history, a man, as I say, who even non-Christians write about saying he did amazing things. And when you read the accounts of his life, there's someone to come to terms with. It's not good enough just to say he was made up. Because no proper historian thinks that. Jesus was a man of history, and he claims to have extraordinary power and authority. And if he has the power and authority that we see in Exodus, if that's who Jesus is, then he's not someone you want to get wrong, is he? Rather, he is someone you'd want to take refuge in and be on his side. And the offer is open for people to do that, to come to him, to take refuge in him, to find the blessing in life which he gives, and come to him. You see, know God. See the power and the authority that he has. See how all of that is seen in Jesus. And take refuge in him. Serve him, worship him, love him. Well, let me pray.